We are taking a little hiatus uh, from Daniel uh, for a week or so, week, actually two weeks, this week and next week, and we'll jump into chapter 10 the following week. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. This morning I want to talk to you about um, some categories of end time things that I, I think are important for us to have some, some feel for, some understanding of. A number of you have expressed interest and in, in desire to have a, 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 a visible means of understanding the 70 weeks of Daniel. So I'm going to try to produce some charts for you for next week. So you'll have some charts that will help you visually grasp the 70 weeks. And uh, pray for uh, Francie, our translator this morning, because I'm going to use some really big words. She's been trying to figure out how to, how to do this with. She's been working all week on it? Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk to you this morning out of, uh, out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, and uh, what does the future hold? And again, this is going to just be a broad survey, but I think it's, a, it's an important survey for us to engage uh, some of you may have difficulty following along with me. Hopefully it'll be minimal, but uh, I'll try to do my very best to, to help you through this. Uh, in Matthew 24, this is called the Olivet Discourse. This is the, this is the teaching that Jesus does on the Mount of Olives uh, just prior to his passion, prior to his death. And it's in the context of this particular teaching that he does. He gives, he gives insight into future things. And there's much debate as to whether the future things are the immediate future or the distant future or some combination thereof. So there's, there's lots of debate about these things, and as you'll see by the end of our time this morning, uh, it's very, very difficult to reach a conclusive uh, perspective. But let's just read the first few verses. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus told his disciples that big changes were coming. And they asked in response, well, when? When will all this happen? It was not only Jesus, but also people throughout the, the, the past couple of millennia, if you will, uh, have, have still been asking questions about the future. And the fundamental question is, how is it all going to end? How will God tie up all of history's loose ends? How will he get rid of evil once and for all, and how is he going to usher in his eternal kingdom of justice and peace? Now, we look forward to evil finally being done away with, don't we? And, and it's just, I mean, death and sin and pain and grief and sorrow, we, we long to see all that gone, and finally justice and peace ushered in. Well, the question is when? How long, O oh Lord? Echoing the, the disciples, when 
will all this happen? And what will be the sign of Christ's coming and of the end of the age? We believe that Christ is coming. He's, he's talked about it. We've read it. The Old Testament prophesies it. Uh, but the question is again, when? What will be the signs? The search for answers to these questions falls under a, a, a scope of study called eschatology. That's your first big word. And she did that good, didn't she? Eschatology. Eschatology is simply the study of end times. The study of end times. Interest in this subject, interest in eschatology, has fluctuated throughout church history. Uh, some notable examples, uh, some of you know the name Augustine. He was one of the great church fathers and, and probably one of the most uh, influential Christian writers of all time. And uh, he, he lived between uh, the 4th and 5th centuries. And uh, he, quite frankly, downplayed end-time scenarios. And we're going to look at a number of those scenarios this morning. But he, quite frankly, just downplayed them. He wrote a summation of human history called The City of God. You may have read it. If you haven't, you ought to read it. It's an interesting, interesting perspective. And in that, he speculates that Jesus Christ's return and the end of time might not arrive for thousands of years. The point being, this was not a great deal of interest. This didn't hold a great deal of interest for him in terms of the details. Uh, some of you recall the name John Calvin, one of the great reformers in the 16th century. And uh, he wrote a, a magnificent work, an expansive work, uh, entitled The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And that's a massive work. It's over 900 pages. And out of that 900 pages, he devotes 15 pages to eschatology. So from Calvin's perspective, he was, he was not necessarily involved in, in, in expansively understanding and explaining uh, eschatology and end-time things. He was primarily focused on the hope of the future resurrection of the saints, completely ignoring the hows and the whens uh, and all those kinds of questions that we would typically be interested in. So you contrast those attitudes like Augustine's and Calvin's and some of the other reformers, uh, contrast those attitudes with the dawn of the, of the second millennium. In other words, when, when the year turned from 999 to 1000. There's another fascinating book. It's called Doomsday, The End of the World, A View Through Time. And this is, again, a, a, a survey kind of a book. And the author, Russell Chandler, writes that panic and dread literally gripped Europe when the calendar flipped from the year 999 to 1000. They believed that, uh, the people of that day believed, the Christians especially, that the reference to the thousand-year reign of Christ, which is recorded in Revelation chapter 20, we'll look at that in a little bit, uh, that that meant that the end of the world would come exactly 1000 years after the birth of Jesus. So they're looking at, at when that calendar flipped from 999 to 1,000, that they're expecting the end of the world to happen. So every natural disaster that they experienced and, and every earthquake that they experienced, uh, even a total eclipse of the sun, was taken as a sign that the end was at hand. In our own time, 
we've experienced uh, two world wars. Two world wars. We've experienced the dawning of the nuclear age. We've experienced the, the coming of the third millennium. I mean, just, just mind-boggling things that our generation has experienced. And these, all of these things have also uh, triggered a, uh, another surge of enthusiasm in this subject called eschatology, or end-time things. Words such as millennium, tribulation, rapture, apocalypse, began to enter the vocabulary not only of believers, but even of popular culture. And, and we begin to see an onslaught of, of movies and TV shows that begin to speak about and address these kinds of themes. There is an upsurge in interest and enthusiasm for end-time things. I first became interested in these end-time things uh, early on when I became a, a believer uh, back in the 70s, and I read uh, Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. Some of you know the book, and maybe you'd read it or some others of his books. And I was absolutely fascinated. Growing up Roman Catholic, we knew nothing about these kinds of things. Uh, this was a complete new world that opened up to me. And, uh, and so I was fascinated reading about these things. And then the, the 70s and 80s were a period of, of uh, prophecy conferences and seminars all over. Uh, Chuck Smith was noted for his prophecy seminars. The radio was filled with preachers who were teaching on end-time things. And uh, these are things that just, just kept you riveted and you listened and anticipated and People were setting dates when Jesus was going to come. and uh, Not everybody, but there were people who were actually doing that and, and approximating when Jesus was going to come back. So it was always, it was, a, it was a very, very, very engaging time and a very, very engaging subject. Um, more recently, uh, we've seen a resurgence in this. this. The whole series of the Left Behind books uh, has, again, aroused interest in a whole new generation of readers in end-time things. Some of you may have read those books. Um, so I, I just want to just kind of give you a little bit of background, and, and with that background, uh, I want to survey the major views about the end of the world that Christians have held. And the barrage of terms and the barrage of interpretations about the whens and the hows can, in fact, be confusing. And some of you are going to go, whoa, this morning, all right? But hang with me. You can always get the CD. You can go to mini church. All right, and get your blanks filled in if you miss them this morning. But seeing the big picture of what Christians have believed about the future, I think, can give us a little perspective on our own times and what we can and what we can't know for sure. Because a lot of preachers and a lot of writers and a lot of books speak really definitively about the end times, as if this is the view. And I'm going to suggest to you, it is really, really hard to nail down a conclusive view, okay? And as you shall see, you're going to go, whoa, I didn't know all of that was out there. So we're going to look at some of this stuff. So what I want to share with you is not a definitive explanation of these views, but rather is simply a brief overview of these views. So we're not going to get into great, great detail. 
we're going to journey through all these different positions. And uh, as, as you go on a journey, very often you know that you read, reach forks in the road. Isn't that true? So we're going down this road. Oh, we reach a fork in the road, all right? So we're going we're gonna, to uh, we're gonna reach these different forks. And each fork is a key belief. It's a key uh, event. And the position that Christians have taken on that belief invariably leads to another fork, and then to another fork, and then to another fork. And so as we walk down this, I'm going to identify, okay, here we're another fork in the road, and now these two views, this view splits off. And we'll give you a little bit of background. Are you with me? Ready to go? Here's the first fork. The first fork we face deals with the question of whether the end has already begun. It deals with the question of whether the end has already begun. The dividing point here is whether the events of the Bible, or rather the events that the Bible describes relating to God's plan for the world and and, and end-time events, whether they have already happened or if we're still waiting for them to happen. So the the first fork in the road is, is all the prophecies, all the... The words, everything that that's, that's it's in the Bible about end time events. The first fork is: Have these things already happened, or are we still waiting for them to happen? That's our first fork in the road. From the beginning to the end, the Bible is filled with passages that offer hope that the Lord will bring history to a close in a way that brings them brings Him glory and eliminates all traces of evil and all traces of sin. That's our hope. One day, one day, many scholars, as they study the scriptures, believe that major portions of Daniel, and as we have been studying through Daniel, and more particularly, the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through chapter 12, many, many scholars believe that those, those passages describe the events surrounding Jesus' return. And more particularly, as we had looked at the 70 weeks, and what is that? Are those 70 weeks already fulfilled, or uh, are we still waiting for them to be fulfilled? So there's lots of details there that is debated. Uh, The uh, prophet Ezekiel, chapters 38 through 48, are particularly fascinating. And again, many scholars believe that those those 10 chapters uh, describe uh, the future events and the future judgment of the entire world. In addition, we have the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 65, we see that God promises to create a new heaven and a new earth. And again, there's debate about this. Just turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. Verse 17, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old man who, die, who, who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. 
No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord and they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Is that not a beautiful picture? That's, that's this picture of, of finally justice and restoration and, and everything new, if you will, as opposed to existence like we understand today. So the question is, when is all that going to happen? We have in the New Testament major passages that give details of the end time, and these passages are familiar to most of us, uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the companion passages in Mark's Gospel would be Mark chapter 13, Luke's Gospel chapter 21. So you put Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, Luke 21 together, you have a more comprehensive view of the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' discussion of end-time things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives his defense for the resurrection. He talks about uh, the new body and the new existence. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, speaks about the the catching up, if you will, uh, of believers at the coming of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We looked at that passage briefly, and we saw that it identifies the the man of lawlessness. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about the destruction of, of the world. And certainly the book of Revelation is full of insight. But Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, especially important because those chapters contain Jesus' response to the question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those and many other scriptures deal with end time events, yet believers are divided over whether these prophetic passages refer to events that are yet to take place, or did those events already occur? There is our first first fork in the road. That's our first battle. Did all these events that Jesus talked about, that the prophets talk about, did they already occur, or are they yet to occur? There's two groups of people. Futurists, futurists believe that all these passages would refer to, what do you think? The future. That's right. Very good. (laughs) So the futurists would take all of these prophetic passages and they would say they refer to the future. Now there's a second group of people, and these people are called the preterists. They derive their name from the term uh, preterite. Preterite means past tense. So preterists would hold that what? The events have already happened. Many, certainly, uh, if not all, of the events prophesied have already taken place. So our first fork in the road when we deal with all these prophecies is we're dealing with two major groups of people. What's the first group? Futurists. What's the second group? Preterists. The, The futurists believe in what? 
that all the events of prophecy are yet future. The preterists believe what? That the events, if not all, then certainly many of them have happened already in the past. Okay? Good. Example, the futurists would believe that Jesus' description of the destruction of the temple that we just read about in Matthew chapter 24, they would believe that that refers to a future temple that has yet to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, if you go to Ezekiel, in those passages that I referenced to you in Ezekiel, chapters uh, 38 to 48, you see a prophecy about a temple being built in Jerusalem. Now, is that a future temple? And is that the temple that is yet to be built and destroyed? It's, for many people, it is speculation. No one knows for sure. Preterists, preterists, on the other hand, would point to the temple, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that it's already occurred. What year did it occur? A.D. 70, when the Roman armies came in and destroyed it. See, you do remember something (laughs) from Daniel chapter 9. Very good. So we've got futurists and we've got preterists, right? All right, now we're going to move over to the preterist side, okay? And we've got another fork in the road here. You ready? There's two kinds of preterists. The first group we'll call full preterists. Now, they're a minority view, but they believe that every single eschatological event has already taken place, including the resurrection of the dead and the day of judgment. They even say that Jesus returned in A.D. 70. And when you read these people, they make compelling arguments. But you have to understand there are other sides to the argument. Now they believe Christians are living in the age to come in which Jesus reigns. So if you were to be taking a full preterist position you would be saying, everything has already happened. We are now living in the age to come in which Jesus reigns. The second group, partial preterists. So what are our first two groups? Futurists and preterists. Now we take our preterist group and we break them down to what? Full preterists and now partial preterists. Okay, partial preterists believe many, but not all, of the Bible's predictions regarding the second coming were fulfilled during the first century. So they would say many of these prophecies have been fulfilled, but not all of them. The full preterists would say all of them have been fulfilled. Are you with me? Okay. The partial preterists believe that Jesus' return and the final judgment are yet still future events. Jesus' return and the final judgment are still yet future events. Now that brings us to our next dividing point. Our next dividing point focuses on what's known as the thousand-year reign of Christ. Where would I find that in the Bible? Revelation, Revelation what chapter? Chapter 20. Turn there with me. 
Revelation chapter 20, the first 10 verses, describes a thousand-year period when Jesus rules on the earth. This is known as his millennial reign. Now, when you read it, and we're going to read it in just a minute, but when you read it, it appears very literal. I'm not saying it is, and I'm not saying it isn't. But it appears to be quite a reign. It's characterized by the fact that Satan will be captured and bound for a thousand years. At the same time, those who had lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, will rise from the dead and they will reign with him. After the thousand years have passed, the devil will be set free for a short period of time. He will immediately gather the nations of the world together and lead them in one final rebellion against God. And then fire from heaven will consume the enemy armies and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire uh, forever and ever. Let's just look at the passage. Just turn there. Let's read the first ten verses. John says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked, the, the, and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more than until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are the holy, blessed are and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them uh, for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the question is whether those events are to be taken literally or they're to be taken symbolically. So that's our next fork. When we deal with the, this thousand-year reign, scholars differ and argue, are they to take these events literally, in other words, is there a literal thousand years, or is it symbolic? That's a main, main argument. They aren't questioning the truth of the Bible, but rather they're questioning what John, the writer, meant to convey. What's he meaning to say here? John uses symbolic language in the book of Revelation. We call it apocalyptic language. If you recall, when we started the book of Daniel, we did a, a kind of like a preliminary study identifying apocalyptic language. It's symbolic language. You remember the beasts 
all the beasts that were rise up out of the sea, uh, the horns, and all those things. They were all symbols, right? So John uses symbolic language throughout the book of Revelation. For example, if you look at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, John says that a sharp sword will come out of Jesus' mouth when he returns. A sword he will use to strike down the nations. Now, does he mean that a literal steel blade is going to come out of Jesus' mouth? What do you think? No, it's clearly, it's clearly symbolic. And, and, and what do you think it's symbolic for? What's going to come out of his mouth? His word. The word of God, which is what? Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about the word of God being what? Alive and powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. So we know that that, that sword is, is a metaphor, is, is symbolic for the word. And so uh, we don't think that, that uh, John literally means that when Jesus returns, a, a, a steel blade is going to come out of his mouth. Similarly then, the question regarding the millennium is whether John meant to apply a literal thousand years that could be measured on a calendar or simply a quote-unquote long period of time. What does John mean to convey? Is he talking about a literal thousand years, or is he describing that thousand years symbolic for a long period of time when Jesus reigns? Most futurists, most futurists hold for a future, what do you think? Literal thousand year reign of Christ. While the preterists, now what do the preterists believe? Things have already happened. So the preterists would opt for what kind of interpretation for the millennium, do you think? A long period of time. That's exactly right. So the futurists would say, no, no, no. Uh, Jesus is going to come. He's going to reign for a literal thousand years on earth. Preterists would say, no, that's symbolic language. Jesus is going to reign simply for just a long period of time. We don't know. Uh, remember Augustine his, his view was that simply Jesus would probably not come back for thousands of years, a long period of time. No one knows how long that period of time would be, if you take that position. Now, differences of interpretation regarding the millennium have led to three major views of this whole theme. And here we come to another fork in the road. Actually, it's a triple fork. There's three major views of the millennium. How many know what those views are? Okay, four of you know. It's a good thing I'm here this morning. Let's look at the first view. The first view is called amillennialism. <laughs> Just point to the screen. Amillennialism. Amillennialism simply means no millennium. No millennium, or, if you will, no literal thousand-year period. This interprets Revelation chapter 20 symbolically. So the amillennialists would interpret this passage in Revelation symbolically. Rather than being a future thousand-year period of time when Jesus will reign physically upon the earth, they would say that Christ's millennial reign started when he rose from the dead 
and will continue until he ushers in the eternal age at his return. So it's symbolic for a long period of time. Are you with me? Okay. His kingdom, and this is important, the amillennialists would believe that Jesus' kingdom touches this earth today as he reigns in the hearts of believers. And according to this view then, Jesus could return at any moment. So we, if you're an amillennialist, you take that position, Jesus could return at any moment. Why? Because he rules in the hearts of the believers and, the, and, and, and we don't know when he's coming back. So he could come back at any moment. There's no definitive period of time. Every prophetic event that Jesus said would precede his return, destruction of the temple, wars, earthquakes, famines, uh, the rise of false messiahs, all that's described in Matthew chapter 24, for the all-millennialist, all that has already happened. From the time of Augustine, until the early 20th century, amillennialism was the dominant eschatological position of the church, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Why? Why was this the dominant position? Because, quite frankly, uh, as we said, Augustine was not that interested in end-time things. And so, because he was such an influential person in the church, and it was the Catholic Church at that time that the, the Protestant Church hadn't come into existence yet, and so that view would just continue, and it would be accepted because of Augustine and his influence. The, by the time of the Reformers, of Luther and Calvin and the others, most of the Reformers then would simply share in Augustine's viewpoint because they were more interested in reforming the church. They were more interested in the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith and the reformation of the church. They never really worked out a, a fine, detailed eschatology, the reformers. So they basically accepted the same model. Calvin, in fact, when you read his institutes, he dismissed other end-time positions, especially premillennialism. And he dismissed it as simply fiction, too silly or childish to need or deserve refutation. So when you read, when you read Calvin, he is very tedious, but he can be very, very humorous. And he uses very colorful language. Now the names of the next two views combine two things. They combine a belief about the timing of the second coming with a view about the millennium. Now, the first view, amillennialism, just is a view of the millennium. But now, the next two views combine a belief about the timing of the second coming with a view of the millennium. Are you with me? Yeah. All right, good. So the next one will be, our number two would be postmillennialism. Postmillennialism literally means after the millennium. So this view asserts that Jesus will return after his reign is established and his reign will be established 
through the work of his followers here on earth. While the amillennialists view the millennium as a spiritual reign that is already happening in the hearts of believers, postmillennialists see the reign of Christ coming gradually through the work of the church. It's a very interesting difference between the views. Christ's kingdom is literal. It's a literal outward rule that comes as individuals, as societies, and as governments change in response to the gospel. Even though at the outset of it, Jesus is not physically present on the earth. So this is the hope of many people today. Don't we, don't we hope that we can see society change? Don't we hope that the government would change? So in a lot of ways, we are maybe even unwittingly post-millennial. Now, we're still anticipating Christ to come, all right? But we're thinking, and I think not, not so, so wrongly, that the church can have an effect. We have to hold that thought. While some post-millennials take the thousand years of Revelation 20 literally, most post-millennials will interpret Revelation chapter 20 symbolically, again, to mean a very long time. So it's going to take a long, long, long time for the church to have an impact on culture so that the kingdom of God takes over and Jesus comes after that long period of time to reign on earth. That's what post-millennials believe, and that's what they teach. It's fascinating to me when you talk to post-millennials. Uh, they are just absolutely committed to evangelism. Why? Why are they committed to evangelism? Well, it's a command, but I mean, they're really committed to evangelism. Why? And to making disciples, because the more people, more people get saved, more people are made disciples, what? They hasten Jesus' return. So post-millennials have a vested interest in evangelism just from that perspective. Right, does that make sense to you? All right. Now, lost my place here. Okay, I get one. I'm back. Many of these people also believe that this reign has already begun through the work of God's people, the church. I covered that. Most post-millennials are also preterists. And they believe that Jesus' return is the only event left yet on God's prophetic calendar. So everything has happened. They don't care about all the other stuff. They're just anticipating his, come, his coming after this long period of time, this millennial symbol. symbol. You know what I'm talking about, right? Post-millennials will take verses like Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, very seriously. It's in that verse when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it. Not only will the powers of hell not conquer the church, but according to this view, the opposite will take place. As the gospel spreads and as Christianity expands, Satan will be defeated and the kingdom of God will come to earth. Then after God's kingdom is established through the work of the church, Christ will return physically as king. Do you understand the timing now? 
when Jesus will come according to a post-millennial point of view. He'll come after this long period of time. The church has evangelized the world. The kingdom of God is established as the dominant kingdom, and Christ will then return to rule. After he returns at that point, he will judge everyone according to what they have done, and uh, it will be at that time that the dead in Christ will be raised, and all believers then will be given their brand new resurrection bodies. There is a, an Anglican clergyman uh, by the name of Daniel Whitby who is credited with being the very first person to put together a systematic statement of the post-millennial position. It's, it's existed prior to him, but he was the first one to actually put it together in a systematic way and describe the post-millennial position and implications. And this happened early in the 18th century. That would be the late 17, or the early 1700s. Following on would be Jonathan Edwards bought into this. And Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest preachers in America, preached post-millennial theology. But he added a very, very uh, distinct Americanized flavor to it and, uh, and emphasized America's place in God's plan. And so now you have America being seen as a very, very unique and special uh, land or place or country or people in God's plan. And people still today puzzle over the book of Revelation. They puzzle over Scripture and they say, where is America? Where is the United States in all this? And part of that is a remnant from this early belief. Interestingly, uh, post-millennialism became especially popular during the Victorian period with its beliefs. And if you know anything about history in the Victorian period, the Victorian period was enamored with, with this whole idea of progress, progress. But they adopted that idea uh, from the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment brought a whole different set of packages to us and uh, brought with it the age of reason, which really backfired, if you will, on the people who, of faith in many, many ways. So uh, it was interesting that this became very, very popular uh, because people, Christians could see the, the church progressing and the kingdom of God progressing, and all this was dovetailing with the Enlightenment. It made it very logical for people to believe in this. Interestingly, how many of you have heard this, remember the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic? From the Civil War, right? The Battle Hymn of the Republic expresses a post-millennial hope that God will accomplish his purposes through the Union armies. So all the disruption and the division in America, the post-millennial belief and movement was strong in America, especially in the North, and that song was, was sung as the hope that God was accomplishing his end and bringing unity and his kingdom to bear in America again through the Union armies. Fascinating how these views uh, affect our, 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 our life and how we live. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson in the early 20th century also articulated a form of civil Americanized post-millennialism when he spoke of making the world safe for democracy. Again, this idea of, of, of this utopianism in this, in this great world of democracy and progress and peace was, was Wilson's great, great dream and hope. But ironically... Wilson's ideals led the U.S. 
guess what? Into World War I. And uh, the horrors of that war uh, replaced the optimism of, of his view with great pessimism. And with that caused post-millennialism to then wane because people said, oh my gosh, this is what we'd hoped for. And look, it just come crashing down. The latter half now of the 20th century saw a new form of post-millennialism emerge that believes that God's kingdom will not only arise as the gospel spreads, but as believers take dominion over this earth. This is an interesting movement called Christian Reconstructionism. Christian Reconstructionism teaches that the gospel will triumph, permitting society to be reshaped according to biblical law. And a lot of, a lot of us have bought into this theology unwittingly, believing that if we have more and more Christians, that Christian law and Christian thought is going to govern this land. That is never going to happen. Okay, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote for godly people. But if our goal is to establish a theocracy, and that's exactly what the, what, what the, uh, the people who are opposing uh, the church and Christians, especially in politics, are, are fearful of, is that you Christians want to establish a theocracy. And it's really a function of and a remnant from Reconstruction theology and its post-millennialism in this desire to bring about this, this uh, utopian peace, if you will, uh, through uh, uh, Christians taking dominion. Now, while not nearly as popular as the third view we're going to look at, Christian Reconstructionists have made their influence felt, again, by running for office as a way of taking dominion over the culture with the gospel. Now, the third and final view is the most prevalent view today uh, among, especially among evangelical believers. And this is pre-millennialism or literally before the millennium. So what's our first view of the millennium? All millennialism. What's our second view? Post. And now the third view is premillennialism. This is, now, premillennialists, would they be distinctly preterist or would they be distinctly futurist? Futurist, absolutely. So premillennialists are distinctly futurist. They believe that Jesus will return to this earth to establish a literal thousand-year reign at the end of time. So in other words, they're going to go back to, to Revelation chapter 20 and read those ten verses as a literal thousand-year reign uh, that Jesus will establish. Now, while the amillennialists see Christ's kingdom as already in place, and his kingdom is already in place where? In the hearts of believers. The post-millennialists see his kingdom coming how? Gradually. Very good. The premillennialists believe the kingdom will come cataclysmically. Cataclysmically with a great global upheaval and suffering like the world has never known. And this period of suffering is known as what? The Great Tribulation. That's right. And that term is taken from Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, where we read, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. 
Now, premillennialists, now we're at another fork in the road. Premillennialists come in two major varieties. There are subsets to these. We're not even going to deal with those. That's much too confusing. <laughs> so premillennialists come in two major varieties. The first group are called the historical premillennialists. And they're called historical because their view is found in the writings of many church leaders from the first three centuries prior to Augustine. So they would go back to the first three centuries and read the church fathers and church writers, and they would, they would glean from them pre-millennialist perspectives and points of view, futurist points of view. So they would be called historic premillennialists. Now, while futurists, in regard to Jesus' return and his thousand-year reign, historical millennialists are nonetheless still preterists when dealing with many of the prophetic passages. So they're, they're futurists with respect to Jesus' second coming. They're futurists with respect to um, his thousand-year reign, but they're preterists with respect to all the other prophetic passages. In other words, everything else, they'd say, has already occurred, already happened. There's still yet just two things to occur. For example, historical premillennialists see that in uh, Revelation chapter 6 talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, pestilence, uh, war, famine, and death. Uh, they see them as descriptions of recurring conditions in the world between Jesus' first and second comings. So these things have always happened. They wouldn't necessarily see them as uh, specific events that will take place immediately prior to Christ's second coming. So they say, no, these, these events happened all throughout history. So they would be preterists in that sense, not futurists. The second group would be the dispensational premillennialists. Dispensational. And these people take a decidedly futurist approach to every single end time passage. Most evangelical Christians today would find themselves in this camp. The name dispensational comes from their unique approach to the Bible. That means the dispensationalists believe that the Bible records different dispensations or different areas or different periods of time in which God deals differently with people. In other words, the Old Testament would be a dispensation of law. When God gave the law to Israel through Moses, that would be the era of law or the era of the dispensation of the law. They would look at uh, the time in which we live uh, as the church age or the church dispensation. So the dispensation of law ended with Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And now we're living in the church age or the dispensation of the church or the dispensation of grace. Um, that's how they would view things. They would say that the Bible does hold out promises to Israel. Israel hasn't been totally excluded from God's plan. There were promises not fulfilled during the dispensation of the law. 
And therefore, after Jesus returns for his church, dispensationalists believe that there will be a brief time during which God will once again reach out to the Jews. And as God works among the Jews, Satan will unleash his fury as he tries to thwart God's plan. Most of Revelation describes this period of suffering or tribulation. As you read it, you see that. And more particularly, Revelation chapter 20 describes a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ just before Satan is defeated for all time and the new heaven and the new earth are ushered in. Dispensationalism, uh, though it had its roots in in, in the early history of the church, really came to the forefront in the latter half of the 19th century, the 1800s, through the writings of a man by the name of John Nelson Darby. So we would recognize that name. And this view spread uh, through the rise of prophecy conferences and prophecy seminars in the last decades of that century and was accepted by many, many very notable, well-known preachers and evangelists. How many have heard the name D.L. Moody? Very popular evangelist, very, very well-known, very influential. And it was Darby's writings and Darby's systematic approach to premillennialism that Moody and some of the others uh, of those preachers adopted uh, this view, and it became, in fact, mainline. And then you had the rise of what's known as the Schofield Bible, Schofield Bible is an old Bible. Many people have one on their shelves, don't even realize it. And the the notes of Dr. Schofield detail a very, very clear premillennial theology about end-time things. Dispensational premillennialism can be found everywhere today, from the preaching of Billy Graham through the Left Behind books, series of books. Its emphasis on the events immediately surrounding the return of Jesus brings us to the next fork in the road. Now, you're probably wondering what position I take. The more I study, the more I find I'm a mongrel. I, I'm, I, I promise you, because there are some things that you can adapt from every one of these positions that are very, very cogent, make sense, and other things clearly contradictory. So I've not yet reached a full conclusion, and I want to assure you, by the time we reach the end of the book of Revelation, <laughs> I should have a position. So you have to wait with me. Now, we're going to address the next fork in the road next week. The next fork in the road deals with the the, uh, uptaking of the church, known as the rapture, and the great tribulation. We're going to look at those two major events, and we're going to answer one final, vitally important question next week. And that question is this. Why should I care? Because I know some of you are asking that question right now. We're going to answer that next week. Okay? It's been a good journey? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord. Though we can confuse it, 
Lord, we know that what you, we know that you know what you're doing. We know that your timing is perfect. Lord, I pray that all of us would hold whatever view, we'd hold it lightly, that we could be open to insight and understanding and further study. Lord, it's clear to me that, uh, that there's no absolutely clear, conclusive position. There's so many, so many thoughts and options and perspectives. Just guide us, Lord, as we study. Protect us, Lord, as we continue this journey. And, uh, Lord, lead us into all truth. We thank you. We trust you. Holy Spirit, have your way. As we come now, Father, to the table to receive communion, Lord, help us to be mindful to approach this time in a worthy manner, not, uh, not uh, in, a, in an unseemly, foolish manner. Father, search our hearts and cause us to be mindful of things in our life that are um, not right, things that are there that shouldn't be there, and things that should be there that are not there. And Lord, convict us that we might repent and come to the table and once again rejoice in what you have done as we look forward to Christ's second coming. We love you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen.